you for that vivid illustration. <laughs> Appreciate that. <clears throat> you know, there's many stories that are out there, and some of you may have experienced some of these stories where something bad happens, tragedy, but suddenly somewhere along the line, something good comes from it. It wasn't planned, wasn't expected. You know, perhaps a flooded apartment reveals lots of mold in your walls. And they were able to deal with that before it turned into a real health issue. Perhaps it was something like a car accident and you're in the hospital and then suddenly they find that tumor and they're able to um, operate on that tumor. Perhaps it's something like a flight, you know? You, you, you have this flight, you're excited to go to this flight and suddenly you miss that flight and then tragedy strikes and the, the, the worst happens and that airplane goes down. These two events, some they never happen simultaneously, you know, you're not sitting there one moment, you know, grieved and then joy at the same time, and you're never guaranteed that something good is going to come from this. We're often left asking, when the first happens, why, God? You know, you may not be saying it out loud, but we can think that, why, God? Why is this happening? And only later, if that something good comes, you know, we're, we're left kind of sheepishly saying, oh, that's what you were doing, God. <laughs> Forgive the outburst. In today's passage, we have something similar kind of going on here. We're going to walk through kind of Jewish history in this sermon. Um, and as we don't always know what God is doing in our details, we will find that God is faithfully moving and that something good was still coming, and something good had finally come. And a, a lesson for us, I think, today, when we face difficulties, is that God is faithful from beginning to end. And I hope that this will help you to be faithful in and through the challenging circumstances that you face, whether something good comes from them or not. So today, we're going to be looking at Acts 13. It's a long passage here, 13, verses 13 to 52, Acts 13, verses 13 to 52. But before we dive in, why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your faithfulness. We are thankful, Lord God, that you sent your Son to die for us, Lord God, that we can trust in you that you have called us out of darkness into your kingdom, Lord God. Lord, I pray that for this message that you would give me clarity of speech. Lord, that you would help me to preach this message, that you would be glorified in it through it, Lord, and you would help everyone who hears of it to receive it with eyes wide open and that it would stir in them a greater love for you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Acts 13, verses uh, 13 to 52. Um, it's actually on page 537 of the blue Bible in front of you. So, if you don't have a Bible today, we would love it if you could take that. That's our gift to you. Um, and you can follow along in your own Bible as well. So, starting at verse 13, follow along with me in your Bibles. 
It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose your fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them, then in them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us he has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded, you perish and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke out, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. 
Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, long passage, but lots there. Three observations today we can find from our passage. Three observations. The first observation is this. God is faithful throughout salvation history. God is faithful throughout salvation history. This is found in verses 13 through 25. And so we've read that Paul and his companions, mainly Barnabas, we read about Barnabas, they've left the island of Cyprus and the city of Paphos, and they have traveled by boat right north of that, that area to a land north of them called, it was a Roman province called Pamphylia. And we read at that point, John Mark leaves them and he heads back to Jerusalem. We're not given any explanation why at this point, but further then, Paul now travels further up into a, a town named Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is not the same Antioch that they first left. If you recall, we first we learned about in Acts 13, one, one last week. There are two Antiochs mentioned in the Bible, one in Syria and one in Pisidia, and so they've come to the second of the two Antiochs. And Paul does, as we heard last week, what was customary for him. He would enter into a town, and then he would find the local synagogue, and he would go in and, and be part of that synagogue uh, service. And it was customary that in the synagogue, every, every week, whatever, they would open up the Law and the Prophets, and they would read, read from the Law and the Prophets, and then they would get someone to come up and teach and give a word of exhortation. So this was nothing unusual that was going on here. And so here they come and ask Paul. And I often think, you know, if they were fishers of men, this was quite easy for them because the fish actually jumped in the boat for them instead of them having to fish uh, in some ways because they come up and ask him, Paul, you know, do you have anything you want to share with us? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, Paul is probably thinking, I'm glad you asked. You know, I, in fact, I do. I have something I really want to tell you. And so Paul now gets up and he gives his sermon. This is uh, his big sermon. And we've seen these sermons in the past, haven't we? We've seen first in, in, uh, at Pentecost with Peter in Acts 2, where Paul gets up and gives this great speech, this great sermon. And we see another one later on in Acts 7 with Stephen. And in Stephen's account, it's very fascinating because he recounts salvation history and the leader's unfaithfulness, ultimately leading and killing Jesus, and now we're here with Paul, and he recounts salvation history, but God's faithfulness ultimately in the raising of Jesus. And how do we see that God is faithful in salvation history? Well, you can just look in these passages here with me. We see that God is the subject of the verb. He is the active agent behind all the actions that are taking place. For example, in verse 17, God chose the, their fathers. Purely by his grace, he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Again, in verse 17, God made the people great. In the land of Egypt, if you recall, they multiplied, they grew. 
Again, in verse 17, God then led them out of Egypt. God was the active agent here through these incredible miracles and signs that God did through Moses. God led them out of Egypt. God was also gracious with them in verses 18. We see that he uses the word he put up with them in the wilderness, didn't he? With all their murmuring and grumbling time and time again, God was gracious with them. He put up with them. In verse 19, we read that God destroyed the nations. He has led them out of Egypt, and now he's led them into Canaan, and God is the one behind destroying these nations. Further, in verses 20, God gave them judges. Or judges would deliver the people from their wayward sin time and time again, again, an act of God's grace. And then in verses 21 and 22, we see God gave them a king. First, it was the people's king, Saul, then he would depose that king and set up his own righteous king, King David. And so we see very clearly in our passage that God has been actively moving throughout this whole time, hasn't he? He's cared for his people. He's brought about his purposes. Even when, from their vantage point, it's not always clear, is it? You know, I think if you were to kind of parachute in anywhere in that timeline of history, what would you see? You know, you'd really only see what's around you, right? In your own sphere. You'd have trials and struggles and things that they would go on. Now, did their trials often result because of their sin? Absolutely. But yet, they would still be people that would be going through things in their life. See, all they could do was look back and see at that point in salvation history, what was God doing? What did God, what did he already accomplish? And in that, they, they would listen, they were to listen, and they would then, it would drive them to look forward, to say, I can trust in God in the future and what he's done in the past and what he says of the future. See, Paul is really giving them and us this kind of 30,000-foot view, you know, spanning multi-generations, to see how faithful God is. And I wonder, do you ever find yourself struggling with the faithfulness of God? Do you ever find yourself saying, God, where are you in this? You know, they would have had that same question at times. When you're struggling with what is going on around you, with anxiety and fears welling up, getting the better of you, remember his faithful hand working throughout salvation history. Church, I think we need to go back and be reminded what God has said and what he has done. If he has been faithful in the past, we should trust that he will be faithful in the future. You know, there's this belief system out there called deism. I don't know if you ever heard of deism. Deism is this idea that God or a creator has kind of created the universe. He's spun it up, and now he's checked out. He doesn't interfere with his creation. He's kind of an absentee landlord. Um, that's not the God of the Bible. We can take great hope in that. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Proverbs 20.24 20, says a man's steps are from the Lord. You could just read Job's 37 and 38, and you'll see how active God is within his creation. See, Christian, God is with you, and he walks with you through these storms of life because he cares, even when you are left saying, why God? You know, when you go to the Bible, you are often reminded time and time again how close God is. But the Bible also will build your fear of God. You know, I think on contrast, it doesn't take much, but you look at social media and the news, that builds your fear of man, doesn't it? 
You go to the Bible, it builds your fear of God. Social media and the news, I mean, all you have to do, you go on it for a few minutes, foul play, accidents, death, verbal attacks, tear downs. Now, there's good stuff in there too, but tell me, do you often feel yourself praising God when you get off social media and the news? A hard question to ask yourself, but I wonder, do you need to put down the phone and turn the TV off and pick up your Bible a bit more to build the fear of God and lessen the fear of man? Well, in verse 23, Paul will now jump from David to the son of David. He's going to jump from the king to the king of all kings. He says, through David's offspring, God has now brought the Savior, Jesus. You know, this Savior was prophesied in salvation history in the past. He was prophesied in the Old Testament. We read this in Deuteronomy 18, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14, Isaiah 9, 6. There's many, many places in the Bible that are prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Paul also will now tell us that he was actually prophesied even in the New Testament by pointing to John the Baptist in verses 24 to 25. If you recount, he says here, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. After me. See, John the Baptist was called the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He was the greatest, Matthew 11, 11. Why was he so great? You know, he never actually did any miracles, like Elijah and all that. But he was great because he was, there was no other prophet that would be the forerunner for the Messiah. He came and he heralded the coming of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. What a privileged status and position he was given. See, God has been faithful, church, throughout salvation history to carry out his perfect plans and to ensure his prophecies are fulfilled. This gives us great hope. And this will lead to our second observation, that God is faithful to bring about his promised salvation in verses 26 to 41. God is faithful to bring about his promised salvation. See, now Paul is going to turn from recounting salvation history to making his appeal about salvation history. How this message of salvation about the Savior Jesus Christ has been sent to all of us. See, something good has come. He explains that God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise of salvation even included the very ones who would reject Jesus. You see, he talks about these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and we all know the account. They didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize their very own Messiah when he came. See, the law and the prophets pointed to the Messiah who would come and die for them. He would be rejected by the leaders and people. We read this in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. They read about themselves they fulfilled the very prophecies that they were reading about. You know, I think it's amazing to think what God can do, isn't it? He, he does not need people to do exactly what, you know, you think they need to do to carry out his perfect plans. He can use people who are wicked and against them and still bring about his perfect plan. You know, I, I'm a, if you ask my wife, I'm a big SpaceX guy. I love SpaceX. I love watching them build this rocket, this massive rocket. And you think of the technology and the energy and all the stuff that they do to put this together, the, the engineers and the managers. And you know that you know, Elon wants this thing to be built exactly how he's planned it, how he designed it. They have to kind of do exactly what the plans say. 
Can you imagine what it would be like if he hired a bunch of skilled workers, but then he also hired a bunch of people that absolutely hated him, despised him, and he gives them a wrench and a hammer and tools, you know, and you get those who are doing what they think is right per what the boss says, and you got these people over here, you know, what are they doing? They're bending a pipe. They're removing a screw. They're, they're over-torquing something here putting a hole here. Why? Because they want to sabotage it. They don't like Elon. And then at the other end, spits out a perfect rocket. All the while, that was exactly what he wanted. That's amazing. That's exactly what God does. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You know, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament all pointing to Jesus. Every one has come true except the ones referring to his second coming. No one, church, can thwart the plans of Almighty God. Does that give you joy? Does that give you rest today? See, Paul, in sharing this promised salvation, gives the gospel. The death of Christ was actually part of his plan of salvation all along. We read in verse 28 that this Jesus, he was no guilt worthy of death, it says. He was innocent. And yet he was handed over to the Romans where he would be crucified. In verse 29, it says, Then they now take him off this cross after he's died, and they lay him in a tomb. They bury him, you know. And verse 33, uh, verse 30, that was two sweet words, but God. But God. He raised him from the dead. He was seen by many people, his followers. His followers now would become his witnesses to the resurrection because Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. This is, would become Paul's kind of gospel message. We read it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7. You read that yourself, you'll see it's the same things he's talking about again and again. You know, it's interesting, I've heard people Many times say to me, well, if I don't see it, I won't believe it. Have you ever had anyone say that to you? I, I, won't, I won't believe it. I, I haven't seen it with my own eyes. I always think that's kind of silly in some ways because, you know, you believe things that you do. You don't always believe things you do see. You know, you see a mirage. You're not going to try to drink it. Um, but often they believe things all the time they don't see with their eyes. Right? You think of World War I. They believe that. World War II, Yeah. Gravity. Have you ever seen gravity? I often think that they believe they have a brain even though they haven't seen it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a joke there. I'm not going to go there. The fact is that you do not need to see Jesus physically after his resurrection. It's not an indicator whether it's true or false, whether you see it or not. See, it's not really an intellectual argument. It's a moral argument that people have. There's plenty of evidence that shows that Jesus rose from the dead, but people in their hatred of God, their hatred of Jesus, they don't want to believe it. Why? Because if it's true, then everything the resurrection stands for is also true. You are dead in your sins. Children of wrath. God will judge you someday. Apart from the forgiveness found through Christ, you will stand for eternity at all enmity with God, and you will pay for your sins in a place called hell. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life can be only found through repentance and faith, turning from sin and self, and turning and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Apart from God opening the eyes, 
they won't believe. And to Paul, the resurrection is the proof positive that Christ is exactly who he said he is. He is the great I am. And everything he taught is true, and his death had a lot of significance. And he will use this now, this Old Testament, to prove and show this to his hearers. Why does Paul use the Old Testament? Well, he knows his audience. We really should know our audience, shouldn't we, who we're talking with, right? There were Jews and proselytes there. Proselytes were Gentiles who had become Jews. They knew their Old Testament, so Paul is going to go to their Old Testament to kind of point to the fact like he was prophesied. It's not the same approach he uses elsewhere. We see in Acts 17, he's in Athens and he's speaking to Gentiles. He doesn't go to the Old Testament there, does he? No, he goes all the way back to creation to start and and build kind of who this Jesus is. But in both cases, notice, he uses the resurrection. The resurrection is key. And so in our verses, verses 33 to 35, he's going to have three Old Testament passages here. All point to Jesus as the promised salvation, and they're all tied and connected in some way to the resurrection. See, the first one he, he points to is Psalm 2-7, where he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I know some people will hold that this is directly referring to the resurrection. However, I do think that the term raising Jesus can also, it does actually, in fact, mean raising up Jesus as well. It can ra- mean raise up as a reference to his whole life on earth, as God raised up David, now he raises up Jesus. In Luke 1, 6, 9, we see the same sort of language being used of, of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he says has, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This idea that the Messiah was now coming into the world. Ultimately, I think this really points to the entire life of Christ, including his resurrection, where the resurrection being the ultimate evidence of the sonship of Christ. Second passage he will turn to, Paul will will bring up, is Isaiah 55, 3. He says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And the first thing is like, what are the holy, sure blessings of David? Well, I'm glad you asked. Read 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16. This is God's giving his sure and holy and holy blessings to David. He says he will, he will establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will be forever. And his throne will be forever. And these find their fulfillment in Christ. Why? Because if Christ is risen, never to die again, he lives forever and rules and reigns forever. Amen. But see, there's something else in this passage that's amazing because the, the, there's a hope for us personally because that word, I will give you the Holy Spirit blessings, is actually plural in the Greek. It means you all or y'all if you're from Texas, y'all. He will give y'all all the Holy and sure blessings. See, the hope we have is that the blessings of David are ours as well through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it says when it speaks of a new home, you will be given a new home. You will be part of his eternal kingdom, brother and sister. Someday, it says, you will no more be afflicted by evil men. And someday, you will have rest from all your enemies. All found in 2 Samuel 7. See, brother and sister, something good is still to come. And finally, in the last 
Psalm or Psalm 1610, the final quote that Paul uses, he will say, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. As alluded to, this is a clear reference to the resurrection. David never rose. The idea of corruption is this idea of decay. Jesus didn't decay in the ground. He rose. God raised him from the dead. And Paul is now an eyewitness to the risen Lord. So Jesus came, he died, he was buried and rose from the dead, all prophesied by the Old Testament. You see, now then, Paul will start to give hope from this. What do we do with the facts of Jesus? You know, you need more than just the facts. It's what you do with those facts that really matter. And Paul will give this kind of verse here, and this, he will say in verse 38, he will say, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this Jesus... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes in him is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. You know, it's interesting here. Uh, uh, I really like the ESV, but the ESV here uses the word freed. It's interesting. Nowhere else will they use this, this word uh, in, like a, in the Greek, it's the word dekaio, dekaio. Dekaio actually means to justify or to be made righteous. And I actually kind of like other translations better. It's true, you know. Uh, it is, both of them are true. Uh, we are freed, we are justified. We are freed from the law of Moses. We are not under the law of Moses, but the law of Christ. We are freed from the law that could never bring forgiveness of sins or eternal life. So it's true. But we are also justified. When the law of Moses cannot never justify a person, declare them righteous before God, Christ has done what the law could not do. Because of Jesus, those who believe are now made right with God, declared right. And we read verses elsewhere. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human will be justified, dekaio, in his sight. In Romans 3.28, it says, For we hold that one is justified, same word again, by faith apart from the works of the law. So, yes, brother and sister, you are freed. Yes, you are justified when you believe in Christ. But Paul, before he kind of closes off his sermon, he will now kind of switch and give a warning. I think the warning is very uh, appropriate here. In verses 40, he will go on and he will quote one more Old Testament passage from Habakkuk 1.5. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. In other words, what he's saying, listen, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, don't be like them. When you hear this message, don't be like them. Don't let these words be spoken of of you. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? You know, as I said earlier, having this knowledge doesn't save you. Understanding the facts don't save you. I recall um, one of my profs in school telling a story of, I think it was another prof when he was young, and he was in school, and, and he's sitting in class, and the prof, his prof, was working his way through the book of Romans. And he's just exegeting the text. He's pulling it all out. And this is long ago when you could smoke in the class. You know, so they're all like chain smoking. Like they're just glued to the prop. Like this is the best thing ever. And he's walking through this thing. He's founding it. And they're just amazed at what's coming out. And when he was all said and done, he threw the Bible on the ground and said, I don't believe any of it. 
See, the smartest person in the world, apart from Christ, is just as spiritually dead as everyone else. What do you do with Jesus? When you stand before God, it's not about your awards, your education, the money you had in your bank account, or what you left for your kids. It's not about how many toys you had when you died. It's not about if you created some new medicine that saved hundreds of lives. It's not about if you gave money to charities more than anyone else, or if you sacrificed more time and energy in building homes and digging wells. It's what did you do with Jesus? None of that other stuff gets you into heaven. None of it gets your sins forgiven and grants you eternal life. So who is Jesus? Is he savior or is he just some guy? See, to receive Jesus as savior, you must really see your sins for what they are. They are an offense to God. You cannot save yourself. But again, those sweet words, but God, right? But God sent his son. He lived, he died, he took the sin upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He was buried and rose from the dead on the third day, proving his sonship and fulfilling prophecy. And if you believe this message, this message of salvation, then he took your sins. They are, you are justified. You are freed from the law of Moses. And you are granted eternal life. And this is the gospel. But, and it is freely offered to all. So, how do people respond? How did they respond when Paul gave this message? The same way people respond today. The same way people respond today. Some reject it, some want to hear more, and some, some believe. And this leads to our final observation, that God is faithful to bring this salvation to those who are his. God is faithful to bring salvation to those who are his. Verses 42 to 52. See, when Paul is done speaking in, in verses 42, we read clearly that some people, they start to beg him. They want to know more. I mean, I've never had anyone say that to me, you know, but man, like, they're like, I want to hear more. And they're like, please come back next week. And then on the other side, you have some Jews and devout converts. They seem to have been saved from the passage. It doesn't say clearly, but it says Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Opposed to the works of the law, they seem to have understood something about God's grace. And so it's possible that they were people that were saved. And then in verse 44, we find ourselves one week later as following, uh, one week later we're in, we're at the synagogue again. It's another Sabbath day. And you read that the, almost the whole city is showing up. You know, all to hear in that key words, word of the Lord. I find that very interesting. Word of God, word of the Lord. You'll see it a few times in this passage. And you read there in that passage that when the gospel goes forth, so does the enemy. We've seen this time and time again, haven't we? Where, where the word of God is preached, it goes out, but yet on the flip side, you get some of these kind of hecklers and some of these people that will attack it. See, the Jews did not like what they were seeing. We know that in that city was a, a prim, primarily, again, a Roman city, but they had a strong Jewish, uh, uh, society, Jewish um, presence there. And so these Jews were feeling threatened. And so what do they do? They begin to oppose and contradict Paul. We see that many times. And as the gospel spreads and the church grows, opposition will come. You know, I think sometimes, you know, when you're living this Christian life and maybe talking about it, 
we can sometimes think we've done something wrong because people reject us, people mock us. And you're thinking, you know, I was kind and gracious, gracious, and yet why am I going through this? And Paul, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Christian, you may have done nothing wrong. You might have just tried to live a godly life, and yet you're being persecuted. You're being rejected. You're being mocked. God has chosen to allow you to go through some difficult times to strengthen your faith or to learn to trust him or for some other reason that he has chosen not to share with us. Suffering persecution does not necessarily mean you are doing something wrong. It may, you have to examine yourself if you're in sin, but it may just because you're being faithful. See, the reality, Christian, is that sometimes in the Christian life, you really should feel like a cat in a dog park. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, they're, they're chasing you. <laughs> they're attacking you. They see you out there. And you know, you're going to get out of that with some bumps, some scratches, some scars. That's just the reality of it. But what's Paul's response to these charges that are laid against him by the Jewish leaders? They are fulfilling the very scriptures he pointed to last week. They are the scoffers he warned them about. And I pray that's never said of any of us. These Jews have rejected the word of God. They've rejected Jesus, and thus they have rejected eternal life. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul turns to the Gentiles, and there's this great eruption that takes place now, right? The Gentiles are like, this, this is for me. I can receive this. Why? Because God has been preparing them to receive this message of salvation. And we read this verse in verses 48. Luke says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed... I think there's a few things that need to be said about this passage. It can be a struggle for many. First, it is not saying that God looked into the future, saw who would believe, and then appointed him. If you look at the structure, it's very clear. Those who were appointed first believed second. Second, this means that God was the one that chose. You know, this should, again, not be overly shocking because God chose Abraham freely. He chose Moses. He chose Isaac. God is the one who freely chooses. You know, I think sometimes we need to be reminded that we're really all, we're, we're all guilty in the eyes of God, right? In the end, we're all guilty. You know, if, if there were 10 thieves that were all standing in front of the president and they're all guilty and the president chooses to pardon three of him, you can't charge the president as being not gracious because he didn't pardon all of them. He wasn't obligated to pardon any of them. The very fact that he chose to even pardon one is a sign of grace. And third and finally, that those who God chooses will believe in the end. If God appoints, he chooses, he elects someone for eternal life, then they will believe and they will not fall away. And this gives great hope. You think, well, how does that give hope? Well, we don't have to try harder. 
You know what I mean? You're not trying to twist someone into the kingdom. You know, twist their arm. Mercy, mercy. Hey, okay, I'm in, I'm in. No, you don't need to do that. You can sleep at night. Even if, you know, you butcher a gospel conversation, you can still sleep at night. Although we should grow in that. I'm not saying we don't grow in that. Why? Because God brings increase. God elects. I often say we're rounding up the elect. So who is the appointed for eternal life? I have no idea. God doesn't tell us. He says to preach to everyone. We share the gospel with everyone. We plead with everyone. Verse 39 of our passage said, and by him everyone who believes is justified. Everyone. And so we share the good news of Christ with everyone. So what's the big idea? What's our takeaway? God is faithful to fulfill his plan and bring in people into salvation. He will bring people into salvation. And it's great hope for us. Well, it doesn't take long in this life to realize that you're going to have trials and challenges. If you haven't already, they're coming. Where things will go bad, and the reality is some things... You're not guaranteed something good will come from it. Sometimes the mold does reach your lungs, and sometimes the tumor is not found in time. And sometimes the accident is far more serious than we thought. But do we despair as believers? No. Not those who have received forgiveness of sins and eternal life, because we were never promised our best life now. Because no matter what, something good has come, and something good is still coming for us, isn't it? See, there will be a day when you step back to that 30,000-foot view and you will look back and you will see how his hand was moving all along in the details of your life. And on that day, the blessings of David will be fully actualized for you. The eternal life you have now will be fully realized in you on that day. On that day, all your bad days will have something good that will finally come from it. But until that day, brothers and sisters, we look back to remind us of his faithfulness so we can look forward with a great expectant hope. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are so grateful for your faithfulness. You have been moving throughout salvation history. You have been moving all along to bring out your perfect plans. You bring your your promised salvation in and through Jesus Christ, and you will bring us into your kingdom, and you save us, Lord God, And we can rest and trust in you, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. Help us this day to be faithful when trials come and and bog us down and weigh heavy on us, that we would be reminded that you are faithful, you are good, and you are kind, and you love us. In Christ's name, amen.